We're going to be in the book of Acts this morning, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 2 specifically. Today is the day um, generally known as Pentecost Sunday. And it's not a, a, a celebration that's regarded much in the Baptist church because Baptists have a bad habit that when a cult hijacks something, the Baptists run away from it. But the day of Pentecost was a real event, and it's something we need to be informed about, something we need to, to know about. Pentecost is not a religion. It is not a cultic way, although it has been hijacked by both. But the day of Pentecost, or that celebration of Pentecost, actually started long before what we normally regard as the day of Pentecost. It's a celebration that started over 3,000 years ago. It was a Jewish celebration, a Jewish, Jewish feast. They, they regarded it as the day, that, or the day they celebrated when Moses received um, the, the commandments from God. And they, they came up with this date, and they looked at it as being 50 days past the Passover. And that's where we get the name Penta, Pentecost. Penta, of course, means five or 50 and so Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. Now, if you go actually go back and look at it, it's not exact like most things, but it was a celebration. It was a day they designated, much like we designate Christmas, although we know that, that, that Jesus was probably not born on December 25th. But nevertheless, we designate that day as a day to remember that event. And Pentecost was the day that they remembered the event that took place when God spoke directly to Moses, when God etched his fingers into the tablets and gave us the law. We normally call the Ten Commandments. And so it's that day that they were celebrating for that. And so the church, the early church, was meeting on that day. And, and on that day is what we normally focus on as being the day of Pentecost. But understand that, that they were there celebrating. Much like the Lord's Supper, they were there celebrating Passover. Now there's, they're celebrating that day of Pentecost. They're still celebrating that Jewish feast that was there because it was part of their culture. It was part of their heritage. And so they're all together. There's about a, um, 120, 150, depending on how you, how you add it up, that were there. And, and these, these people were gathered together in the upper room. This was the early church. There's a lot of misconceptions about what took place that day. And there are cults out there that will tell you that the, the church was formed on the day of Pentecost. But that's simply not true. And it's obvious it wasn't true because the church was meeting at that time. And since the church was already meeting at that time, we know the church was already started. Jesus Christ started the church while he was here on the earth. What took place on that day was something that Jesus Christ had promised. Before we can, can kind of get into all that and exactly what took place on Pentecost and, and what it means and everything, to better understand this, this marvelous outpouring of God's grace, of God's Holy Spirit, we need to keep in mind three works three of the works that the Holy Spirit does for us today. Because our relationship with the Holy Spirit changed on that day. And so we're going to look at these, these three things real quick, and then we're going to move on to what Pentecost is and what took place on that particular day. The first work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of, of man is he is the spirit of, of conviction. He's the Holy Spirit of conviction. In John 16, 7, Jesus said it like this. He said, uh, 16, verse 7 through 11, he said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. Is it expedient for you that I go away? For if I go not away, the Comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. 
And when he has come, he will reprove the world of, of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father, and ye shall see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. The, the accomplishment of this work, the Holy Spirit comes to every single individual. He comes into each individual. Prior to this, the Holy Spirit would come into individuals for a temporary period of time to do a, a temporary work, and then he was gone again. But Jesus Christ made us a promise, and that promise is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And that's what we celebrate on this day, is that promise that Jesus Christ said that he would send us a comforter. We usually stop there with those verses, though, don't we? Because we don't like the judgy part. But see, he's not just here to be our comforter. He's also here to judge us of our unrighteousness. He's also here to help us to discern between right and wrong. And we need to understand that there, there's a lot more to the Holy Spirit than just a comforter. Although we normally rely on him, particularly in our worst days as a comforter, we need to understand that every single day he's that still small voice that's in your head telling you the difference between right and wrong. We talked a few weeks back about quenching the Holy Spirit, and one of the easiest ways to quench the Holy Spirit is to ignore that little voice. You ignore it, and it becomes something that you don't even notice anymore. Remember the old uh, Disney movie, Pinocchio? And the, the old, you know, remember Jiminy Cricket? He was Pinocchio's little voice, wasn't he? Literally, a little tiny voice. And he was always telling him, this is right, this is wrong. And what did Pinocchio do? He ignored him, right? And what happened to Pinocchio? He got in trouble, went off with the bad boys, turned into a donkey, got ate by a whale, just the whole thing. This whole thing took place. It all got bad. Why? Because he ignored that little voice. And we don't normally look for Disney movies for theology, but there's a lot of theology in Disney movies, by the way, because the people that wrote those original stories, by the way, the, the Pinocchio story is much darker than what Disney put out there, but we won't get into all that. But they wrote those, they had the, the culture of that time was a Christian culture. So we see the, the lessons of the Bible woven through a lot of the Disney product. As much as they, as much as they have pushed, tried to push Disney out, particularly their older movies, we see the, 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 the culture of Christianity in there. And that's one of those things, ignoring that little voice. And eventually you can't even hear that little voice anymore. The great thing about the Pinocchio story is what? It ends with a repentance. It ends with him coming back to his father. Is there a picture there? Mm -hmm. There's a picture there. And he comes back to his father. We won't get into all that. I may do a series one day on the, on the theology of Disney. I don't know. <laughs> that might be fun. The kids would probably like that. We could show clips from the movies and stuff. and I might do something like that one day. But, but we need to understand that that's what his first work. His second work is, is that of an indweller. He indwells us. This is something else that's changed. Galatians 4, 6 says, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He indwells us today. Remember I told you at the beginning that the Holy Spirit's work has changed? He's not just a, you know, come and does his work and then leaves. He stays inside of us. Even when we ignore him, even when we quench him, he is still there. He indwells us, and he enables us to see ourselves as sons of God. He enables us to be able to cry out, Abba, Father. He shows us by indwelling us that there's something different about us than what there is with the rest of the world. The rest of the world cannot legally, cannot legitimately call God their father. I know they do sometimes, but he's not their father. 
Because none of us are born the children of God. Not one person other than Jesus Christ was ever born on this earth a child of God. You can argue, Adam and Eve. I'm not going to argue with you. Because I don't really argue. I saw a shirt yesterday that I was going to buy, but I didn't have it in my size. It says, I don't argue. I'm just trying to, to explain to you why I am right. Isn't that a great shirt? I need that shirt. They didn't have it in my size. But none of us, without argument, none of us in this room or nobody in existence in the world today was born a child of God. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we become the children of God. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the proof and the evidence of that and gives us the ability to cry out, Abba, Father. Not just servant, not just worshiper, but children of God. The third work is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says, In whom ye have also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the, the earnest of our inheritance under the redemption of the purchased possession, under the praise of his glory. He seals us. This is, this is an important thing. This is something that, as Christians, we need to, we need to understand better. Because there's a lot of, a lot of misinformation out there about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. There are many, many churches out there today that do not believe that that verse is true. And they teach that we are not sealed by the Holy Spirit. They teach that we can lose our salvation. What that sealing means is that, that we cannot lose what God has placed inside of us. Think back to the picture of the, of the ark. Remember the story of the ark? For the sake of brevity, we won't get into everything, but, but remember when he, he told Noah, he says, I want you to seal it, pitch it, pitch it, seal it with pitch on what? The inside and the outside. Now, that was unusual because it makes sense to pitch something on the outside, a boat on the outside, because you don't want the water to get in. But if water gets in, you don't want it to stay there. You want it to be able to get out so they don't pitch the inside. Because they're not trying to keep the, the water in. And God says, pitch it on the inside and the outside. I imagine, imagine Noah, Noah must have been like, what? Why would I do that? We don't see that question, but it had to go probably went through his mind. But nevertheless, he was obedient. And we look back now and we say, well, that's obvious what that was. That was a picture of us. We are the ark. Our hearts are the residing place of God. And by us being sealed on the inside and the outside... It means not only are we sealed from the things from the, in the world of getting into us, but most importantly, that Holy Spirit that indwells us is sealing us so that He doesn't get out of us. We don't lose our salvation. We all sin. And if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, notice I use the word if, because there are people out there that say, well, I was saved and now I'm not saved. No, you were never saved if you're unsaved now. If you were unsaved then, if you're unsaved now, you were unsaved then. If you were saved then, you're still saved today, whether you want to be or not. Because it's not my power. I'm not the spirit of sealing. The Holy Spirit is. He indwells us and he seals it. I am not more powerful, and you are not more powerful than God. Did I just rock your world? Because we live our lives like we're better than God and stronger than God and no better than God. He seals us. Now, you can, you can pretend like you're not his child, 
And maybe you are that child in the real world where you pretend like your parents aren't your parents. Or maybe you, you've got children that pretend like you're not their parents, but at the end of the day, it's still a parent. We don't get unadopted from God. It does not happen. It's that third work that that experience at Pentecost is all about. I want to look through some details of that. Where did it happen? Acts 1.13 tells us it happened in the upper room. The church was meeting together. There's about 120, give or take, that were there. 120 people were, were gathered together, and they were meeting. This was the church that Jesus Christ founded, the church that was continuing, the church that he said the gates of hell, hell would not prevail against. This is that church. This is that church that, that is still is in existence today. It is multiplied and divided and moved throughout the world, but we still exist today. And throughout this pandemic, people have said, you know, this may be the end of the church. This will not be the end of the church. Not even close. If anything, the church thrives during persecution. These people were being persecuted. These people were people like us today saying, you should not meet together. You should not meet in a group. You should not do this. And 120 of them got together in an upper room. I would imagine there were some that were scared to come out that day. There were some that were living in fear. Like so many Christians in our country today, they live in fear today. They fear a virus. They fear a government. They, fe they fear what, what other people may say about them. Nowhere in the Bible are we called to live in fear. We are called to live by faith. Amen. My God is bigger than my government. My God is bigger than my neighbors. And my God is bigger than a virus. I'm not saying we shouldn't use wisdom. And we do. That's why we sanitize our hands. That's why we spread out. That's why we, if we're around people that are infected, you know, when I go to the hospital and do my rounds at the hospital, you know what I wear? I wear a mask. You know why? There's sick people there and I don't want to get sick. Not that I'm afraid of getting sick, but it, my ministry is harder to do from a hospital bed. So I don't want to get sick. But that wasn't just now. That's always. If I go into a, a room at the hospital, and we have tuberculosis patients there almost always. You know what I wear every time I go around a tubercul tuberculosis patient? That's easy for me to say. You know what I wear? I wear a mask because they cough it out. It gets in the air. I don't want to breathe it. I like breathing. I'm ready for God to take me home, but until then, I'd like to be able to breathe. Just, just saying. Kind of one of those things. So what was their demeanor? As you look in Acts chapter 2, verse number 1, it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I love that. One accord. What does that mean? That's not a Toyota. You know, there's the old joke. You know, what kind of car did the apostles drive? Toyota. They were all in one accord. Just crammed in there. 120 of them in that one little accord. What does that mean? That means that they were all in the same place for the same reason with the same attitude. They were there to worship God. And when we come into this church building, when we gather together as today's churches, we gather together, whether we're here, whether we're online, whether we're at our homes, when we gather together, we need to be in one accord. We don't gather for discourse. And we gather together to, to sow the, the fruits of discourse. We're not acting as the church anymore. We're acting like the world. 
Does that mean we always agree with everything? No, we can have disagreements. That's okay. How many of you have family members that you've ever disagreed with? <laughs> Dean, I'm going to put you on the spot, Dean. <laughs> How many brothers do you have? Four. Four brothers and one sister. Two sisters. We're going to leave the girls out right now. We're going to make it simple on you. <laughs> you always agree with your brothers, don't you? No. As a matter of fact, there are probably times where you go through long periods of time where you rarely agree with your brother about anything. This one you may agree with, this one you may not agree with, and you go through those periods of time. Do you still love your four brothers? Yes. Are they still your brothers? Yes. Can you choke them and strangle them sometimes? Yes, of course. But they're still your brothers. And as the church family, we need to get past this. We, we've gotten into this culture where you know, this I'm offended culture. And you come to church, not you, the other yous, they come to church and somebody says something that offends them. So they stop coming around. They don't want to count them as brothers anymore. They don't want to count them as sisters anymore. We've got to, we've got to get away from that. The world has a, has a culture of being offended by everything. You know what? The world acts like the world because they don't know Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be here in one accord. And I may not like something you say, but I'm still going to love you. I may not like something you do. I may need to rebuke you. And I'll rebuke you with love, and I hope you receive it with love. And if I do something out of line, I hope you rebuke me with love. And get ready to be hit. <laughs> no, I mean, I'll receive it with love, because that's just what I do. Verse number two says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. We see this in the Old Testament as well, that oftentimes the, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a wind. And, you know, there's a reason for that, because the Bible tells us that, that you know, with the wind, we don't know where the wind comes from, right? If you go outside and you say, well, it came from over here. Well, where exactly did it come from? Well, just that way somewhere. Well, where is it now? Well, it went that way. We know which direction it comes from. We know which direction it goes, but we don't know where it starts. We don't know where it stops. It just is there. We experience it, and, it, and, and then it's like you know, we can't grab it. And the Holy Spirit, oftentimes in the Bible, is portrayed as this, that it's real, it's forceful, it's, but we don't know everything about it. It's still kind of a mystery to us, as like the wind is. Um, the wind is often used. Um, Jesus used it in, in chapter number three of John to descri describe it as wind. It's described throughout the Old Testament as wind as well. Verse number three says, And there appeared in them cloven tongues like of, as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. This cloven tongue, this thing came in and sat on it. Now notice it doesn't say that it was fire, it was as fire. So, you know, they're looking at this and and uh, the the author of Acts, or the pen that he used, is looking at this, and, and he's, he's describing it the best he can. The Holy Spirit is not fire, but it's also described many times the picture of fire is used to describe him, uh, the wind and the fire. Again, something that's difficult for us to understand. But this, this, these tongues, these cloven tongues came and sat upon their heads so that not only did they feel the Holy Spirit come upon them, but they actually had a, a physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit that sat upon them, these cloven tongues. Verse number four. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost 
and began to speak with other, other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That word tongues, and I, I was thinking about how it's defined and almost said the way it's defined. That word tongues, a modern translation of that would probably be languages. These were not unknown tongues. These were tongues that were known. So, so get this picture now. Here's 120 Christians, and the Holy Spirit comes in. Whoosh! Fire, or what appears to be fire, settles on each one of them. And they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Some of them, this is the very first time they've ever experienced the Holy Spirit. We take the Holy Spirit for granted because he's in us all the time now. For some of them, this is the very first time they've ever experienced the Holy Spirit. So this wind comes in, this fire comes in, sits down on them, and then they start speaking, but they're speaking in languages that they didn't even know. You know, it doesn't give us indication here if they even understood what they were saying, although they were trying to speak uh, Hebrew, Greek, whatever, and, and, but now they're speaking in other tongues, other things. In verse number 5 through 13, it, it describes it a little bit better. It says, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nature, nation under heaven. Something to understand about, about the Jerusalem at this point, Jerusalem was a hub, and people from all around the world would come there to trade and barter and, and make money. They also came there to worship. One of the things that, you know, the, the um, nativity story, the movie, one of the things that they, they did portray really, really well, and it confused some people, is the way that, that they got to Bethlehem. You know, we have in our minds that, you know, that they, they just left and went straight to Bethlehem. But did you notice in the movie they had to go through Jerusalem to get there? And they came into one gate, and they passed through the city, and then they got to a smaller gate that nobody else was using. The first gate they came in was kind of big. They get to this smaller gate, and they're written up there. We can't read it, but written up there is telling them where this gate is going. This is the gate that will take them to Bethlehem. And so they, they go in, and they go through Jerusalem, and they go out to Bethlehem. And this is the way people traveled in that area. They would come into Jerusalem through one gate, and they would leave out through another gate. So that all these people are constantly in and out, and they're trading, and they're bartering. and they're, So many of them don't speak the, the language. They speak languages from wherever it was they came from, whatever dialect they came from. That's what they hear. Devout men of every nation under heaven. Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together. So this is something that didn't stay contained in this room. It, didn't, it wasn't just these 120 people. They were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, not, are not all these which speak Galatians? How, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and, and Elamites and, and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus, and Asia, uh, uh, Phygia, and Pamphylia, and Egypt, and all parts of Libya, and Cyrene, and, and the strangers, and Rome, Jews, and proselytes, Cretes, Cretes, and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongue the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed, and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocked saying these men are full of new wine. So these, these people, doesn't matter where they were from, this diversity of languages are there, and they're like, how, can, how is it we're hearing people in our language? So here is the, 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 the powerful thing of tongues. The, the way tongues is, is 
Anytime I've argued about tongues in this day and age, I've told people, I said, okay, before we, we establish whether or not tongues are still in existence today, we first need to find a church that practices tongues the way the Bible described tongues. If we can find that church, then we can discuss and we can argue about whether or not it's real or whether or not it's made up. But the way that churches practice tongues today is they, they preach or they, they use tongues that nobody in the room understands. It's not a real language. If it's not a real language, it's not tongues. See, what should happen is, if, if, if I had the gift of tongues, if we were in this time, and I'm up here speaking, this is how it would manifest itself. Everybody in the room would hear English. Except our Spanish speakers. Where you, where Tanya, you'd hear me speaking in English, Miguel would hear me speaking in Spanish. That's how it would work. You guys wouldn't hear Spanish. You know why? You don't speak Spanish. That's not your first language. And if there was somebody here that spoke that was spoke Arabic, they would hear Arabic. They wouldn't hear Spanish. And they wouldn't hear English. They would hear Arabic. You know, each person heard what these people were saying in their own tongue. It wasn't a gibberish. It wasn't like, hey, this group is speaking Chinese, and this group is speaking Greek, and this group is speaking Hebrew. They heard everything in their own tongue. That's not how it's practiced today, is it? If somebody speaks tongues in the church today, everybody in the room here is gubbly gobbly gop. And nobody understands it. And there'll be one guy in the back who'll raise his hand and say, this is what he's saying. <sighs> That's not how it works. That's not how it ever worked. Not one time did it work like that in the Bible. So when you hear that, understand that's not biblical. So before we can have a discussion whether or not tongues are biblical for today, we first had to find one church, one preacher, one prophet, that's a whole other argument, that is practicing it the way they practiced it in the Bible. So I will not argue with you whether or not tongues exist. What I will argue is we cannot have that discussion until we find one person today that practices tongues the way it was practiced in the Bible. When you find that one person, we can have a, a conversation about whether or not tongues exist for today. Here's a little tip. You will not find it because it does not exist today. It existed then. What was the point of this? What was the point of tongues then? Exactly what it says. So that everybody could hear the gospel. See, the gospel wasn't for the Jews alone. Up until this point in the world, it, it seemed, well, until Jesus got here, it seemed like God was only concerned about the Jews, with some very notable exceptions where people from other, tri other, other people groups were brought in. But for the most part, it was just for the Jewish people. But understand, God was never just for the Jewish people. He was for all people. And this made it very, very clear this showed very, very clearly that the, the walls were being broken down, that things were, were changing. And as we get into the book of Acts, we see more and more examples of this. But things were changing where it's not about race anymore. It never really was. But the Jews had kind of had a stronghold on it. They, they had, a, had, had pulled that you know, away from the rest of the world and said, no, this is ours. And the rest of the world recognized that. The rest of the world, we see encounters where they would say, the Jewish God or your God. God was always the God of everybody. 
He always has been. But here, he's making it very clear. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. You see, when we worship God, God is a unifier. He brings people together. The world separates. Look at what's going on in our communities today. They are separating things based upon race. Last week, it was based upon a virus. This week, it's about race. And next week, it'll be something else that they try and separate us on. Because that's what they want to do. They want to divide and they want to conquer. The world does not want us to be successful as a country. The world does not want us to be successful as a church. Jesus Christ is a unifier. He brings everybody together just as he did then. He brings everybody together. Jesus Christ was a unifier. When he was dying on the cross, he was not trying to build walls. He was trying to break down walls and say, God, forgive these people, these evil sinners that just nailed me to the cross. Forgive them for they know not what they do. We cannot fall victim to this mentality in our country that, that because I'm white and you're black or you're Hispanic, that somehow we are different in the eyes of God and we need to be separated from each other. That is foolishness. Amen. The weak-minded use hate to feel like they have purpose and they have power. When I saw that police officer killing George Floyd... I saw a man being killed by a bad cop. Those that want to divide us saw a white man killing a black man. If the first thing you see is race when you look at something, you're a racist. This was an atrocity. This is something you should have never, it should have been dealt with before this. Before he was ever even in that position, people knew he was violent and did nothing. Do not fall for the traps. Do not let the world divide you because of these little minor insignificant differences. Whether it's race or income or, or party affiliation, that's, that's just foolishness. The enemy always divides before they conquer. Jesus Christ unified. with well, The picture of the Pentecost is not one of division. It's one of unification. It's one of bringing people together. Acts, 32, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, not the Jewish people, not the white people, not the black people, not the Asian people, every one of you, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that, all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. You know, this isn't just for the people that were there. You know, they just saw this amazing thing. This promise of Pentecost wasn't just for those 120 people. We look at those 120 people and say, whoa, what an awesome experience. Peter comes out and says, by the way, this wasn't just for us. This is for everybody. And it's not just for you guys. It's for your kids too. And it's for your kids' kids. And it's for us today. The beauty of the Pentecost is just as real for us today as it was for them. Now, we may not, you may not get saved and have a rushing wind and a tongue of fire come upon your head, but you will receive that same indwelling, the, the, the same power that they received then when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. He still comes in. He still does his works. So look, look at these results. In Acts uh, chapter 2, verse 41, it says, The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Like these are souls from all around the world. Look at the power of the Pentecost. 
The power of the Pentecost is people from all over the world were gathered together for what they thought was for bartering, for trading. Holy Spirit comes in, does his work, and, and convicts them, and dwells them. The gospel is preached. They, ex they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not just those 120, but 3,000. 3,000. They accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They receive that Holy Spirit. And you know where they do? what they do? They go home. They go back to all these different lands carrying that Holy Spirit with them. Carrying that gospel of truth with them. The blessings continue. In verse 42 it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. You see, the, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't something that, that is a one-time thing and it stops and we're done. It continues. What should be bringing us to church each week isn't a sense of obligation. It should be that Holy Spirit inside of us. It should be our desire to come together. It should be our desire to work together and, and, and serve together. Power of the power of the personal Pentecost is available throughout the church age. As long as the church exists until Jesus Christ comes back and takes um, the church home with him, the power of the Pentecost is still here. We still have that indwelling. You see, it was different before the church. And once the church is gone, Holy Spirit should be very different again. You know, we look at this world today and, and, and we see the riots and we see the hatred and we see the killings and we see all these natural disasters that are taking place and everything is just getting worse and worse and worse. And we're like, you know, this is getting horrible. Understand, this is all happening while the Holy Spirit resides here in each one of us. When the church is gone, the restraining powers of the Holy Spirit on evil are also gone. What we are seeing today is nothing compared to what we're going to see during the tribulation. This is why it's called the Great Tribulation. This is why it starts after the, the church is pulled out. After the church is pulled out, we see every manner of, of evilness that is today restrained being unleashed. Satan's desire has always been the destruction of God's creation. The only thing that's stopping him or slowing him down now is the restraining power of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be removed. And we're going to see Satan, Satan's hatred completely poured out. Not just little bits and pieces here and there, but completely poured out upon this world. In addition to that, of course, we'll also see the wrath of God poured out. We'll talk about that during our, not tonight, but during our Revelation study. We're going to talk about all those things. They're going to take place. How do we get that power today? Because many of us have experienced salvation, but many of us are, are, are lacking in that power. In Luke chapter 11, verse 9 through 13, that's Luke 11, 9 through 13. Jesus says it like this. He says, And I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. And he that seeketh, findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of you, that uh, you that is a father, will he give him a stone? 
Or if he ask a fish, will, will, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye, then being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? We, you know, we have that, we have a lacking in our churches. We have a lacking in our individual lives. And the reason is we don't ask. It's not that the Holy Spirit is unavailable to us. The Holy Spirit resides inside of us. The Holy Spirit, and I, I changed a little bit there. You know, people are panicking on me. Um, but to kind of emphasize that point, people are like, "What? my Bible says something different. That's okay. Um, the reason why we don't have those good gifts, the reason why we don't have that specifically what we're talking about today, the Holy Spirit, is we won't ask. That still small voice still exists inside of you. You have to reach out to it. You have to talk to it. If you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that voice is there. If you haven't, the Holy Spirit is not there. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the only thing that the Holy Spirit is doing in your life today is convicting you. He's making you feel uneasy. He's giving discomforting you. He's making you think. He's making you wonder. He's making you do desire for answers. That's what he's, he's whispering in your ear today. And maybe some of you are sitting there today and you're thinking, you know what, I'm not sure if I'm saved. You know, that doubt isn't necessarily coming from Satan. That doubt may be coming from the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is telling you, you're not saved. And the world is saying, oh, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. You see, because you don't get saved by coming to church. You don't get saved by thinking happy thoughts and doing good works. You get saved by trusting on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Remember the message Peter was saying? Repent. Repent. What does that mean? That means we turn away from our sin and we turn to Jesus Christ. That has to have happened at some point in your life for you to have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. If that hasn't happened, you're not saved. So you can't expect the Holy Spirit to lead you. You can't expect the Holy Spirit to guide you. But if you have done that, if you have prayed and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, today that Spirit is inside of you. And if you don't feel the power of that Spirit inside of you, it's not because He left because you're not asking for it. Ask, and you shall receive. Ask, and you shall receive. Jesus Christ can't make it much simpler than that. <coughs> all of us did that. When, all of us, when we were unbelievers, we experienced that conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we were born again, we don't have to ask for the Spirit to come into us. He automatically does it. He leads us. Remember, if you then being evil and know how to give good gifts unto your children... How much more shall your heavenly Father give give his Holy Spirit to you? How much more? How much more will he give his good gifts? And his greatest gift is that Holy Spirit that he places inside of us. We want to experience the Holy Spirit? We need to ask for it. The Greek word that's used in that verse for ask is, is a word that means continually asking. Continually asking. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens at the time of salvation. But that filling, that ongoing work, that's the only command, by the way, we have regarding the Holy Spirit. Well, don't quench Him. But we have that command to be filled. Not to obtain, because we've already got Him. But to be filled. 
In other words, we need to stop isolating parts of our life. We need to turn over more and more of our life to him and allow him to have a place and not segregate him. He will say, okay, well, Holy Spirit, we'll let you have our worship, but we won't let you have our money. We'll let you have our worship, but we won't let you have my our, our job. Or maybe we'll let you have the money, but don't, don't my family's mine. Don't touch my family. And we segregate and we do cafeteria style. And that's not filling. That's peace work. And we don't need peace work with the Holy Spirit. We need a filling of the Holy Spirit. Allow him to have his work in every single aspect of your life. Your work life, your home life, your prayer life, your worship, everything. You'll soon see that every part of your life becomes worship. Every part of your life becomes closer to God.